everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to season two of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we focus on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we are excited to be speaking with Michael McCord, Managing Director of the Microinsurance Center at Milliman, and Abhishek Dawan, Sustainable Finance and Partnerships Specialist at UNCDF. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Esther. Thank you, Esther. Michael, about yourself and also Milliman. Thank you, Esther. I'm Michael McCord, and I've been doing microinsurance now for 26 years. I started with a commercial microinsurance product in Uganda all those years ago. And I started the Microinsurance Center in 2000 and joined with Milliman in 2017. Milliman is one of the largest actuarial consulting firms in the world and has operations across the globe. Microinsurance Center has worked in 75 different countries, developing products that are appropriate for the low-income market. Terrific. And Abhishek, how about you? How did you come to join UNCDF? Thank you, Esther. I started my career working in financial markets, and capital markets has been my passion. However, as the world started to change, something around climate became interesting for me, and I switched careers and worked in climate climate change policy and climate finance. And most recently, I was doing investments in clean tech companies. But then UNCDF was looking to bring on board somebody who could create new innovative financing structures to move more financing into the LDC markets, which is why I decided to join UNCDF. And we're very excited and lucky to have you. So we're here today to talk about the topic of climate insurance bonds. And I think this is quite a new area for most people. So I wonder if you could tell us, you know, what is the promise of climate resilient infrastructure to address the challenges of climate change and how could climate insurance bonds meet that challenge or achieve that promise? Low-income people, which is our particular focus, commonly have the most risk in terms of climate change. They're the ones who are living in the dried riverbeds that flood more often now because of climate change. They're the ones who live across the sea coasts. They're the ones who are most damaged. They have the most vulnerable housing. And so what we're trying to do is is think about new ways in which we can help those people to be more resilient uh, with their lives and their lifestyles. And so thinking about how we can create long-term infrastructural changes is really important for these low-income people, and it's important for these national governments. And Abhishek, what made you think of climate insurance and a climate insurance bond, no less? How we thought about climate insurance was that, as we know, climate change is inevitable and it's going to happen. The cost of insuring municipalities or even public goods against extreme climate events is going to get more and more. And as we know, in LDCs and other emerging markets, municipalities have limited resources. So it's very difficult for them to start thinking about insurance or related to climate events on an annual basis 
when they know that the costs are going to go up. So we started thinking about why not look at climate insurance, which is long term, which can give them assurance of cash outflows and inflows in case of climate events, and how that could be priced and structured in a way that could help these municipalities be more incentivized in order to build climate resilient infrastructure. And to give some background to our listeners, we've had discussions at the United Nations for many years where some of the countries that Michael is talking about that are the most poor, the most vulnerable, and ironically enough, contribute the least to climate change, have made heartrending appeals on the, on the floor of the United Nations saying, you know, my country is sinking. We need you guys to stop talking and take some action. So we found it, you know, quite imperative to start creating vehicles that could address these needs from member states, specifically the small island developing states had come to us a few years ago and said, you know, explain this problem of the insurance that they have so many development challenges to start with. And then one climate disaster happens and it kind of wipes them out and they build to recover from that. And then another one comes and wipes them out. And so they were really incapable of moving forward with their development objectives without some support. So that was the background to this worthy work that both of you are pursuing. So, Michael, the idea of climate resilient infrastructure, right? We've seen what happened in Texas. We're seeing what happens around the world. Why aren't people investing in climate resilient infrastructure at scale? What we're seeing is that people aren't investing, partly because um, the governments can't get the kind of money that they need to make these infrastructural changes. And many governments need to go through a kind of transition phase where they recognize that this needs a more permanent solution. What we've had up to date is uh, mostly efforts of government just trying to rebuild where people are, which is not appropriate, or rebuilding in the same way is not appropriate. What we need is to be able to start thinking about how can we change the equation, and I think governments have just been slow to do that. And to be fair, it's really a money issue. I spoke at a conference in Bangladesh in um, 2019 when I was traveling, and um, I was speaking with the senior secretary from the Ministry of Finance, and, and he was making that same impassioned plea that you just mentioned. You know, we need more money from government. And I said, maybe not too politely, but I said, if you wait for the governments of the rest of the world to pull together and get you the money you need, half of Bangladesh is going to be underwater. We have to find better ways of making this happen. And governments are there, they're waiting. They want better options. So let's talk about then why this climate insurance bond structure is something that the two of you think can tap the resources that do exist in the capital markets and bring them to this urgent financing need to fund climate resilient infrastructure. Abhishek, what do you think are some of the structural challenges that have prevented this kind of financing from happening already? And then when it is tried or tested or piloted, what's preventing it from reaching scale? Sure, thanks Esther. I think that's a great question. I think the structural challenge that we face because of which this is not happening The first of those is that investors who are investing in municipalities or in muni bonds are not looking at climate risk holistically and when they are pricing. So, for example, if an investor today is looking at a AAA rated country 
or looking at two AAA rated countries, they are not factoring in the climate risks that these countries have or not have when they look at their return expectations. And I think that's a big structural challenge. And, and that exists not just with the private sector investor, it also exists with some of the larger pension funds and other investor classes as well. So that's the first sort of challenge that is there. The second biggest challenge is the definition in itself of what is meant by resiliency. I think that itself changes from context to context, as well as changes from the type of investments the investors are funding. And last but not the least, there is no incentive for municipalities. And like Michael mentioned, there is a lack of financing. So they want to build a lot more and there is a lack of infrastructure in the first place. And so the money that exists can go only so far. And if they start thinking about building resiliency, they need more financing to build that resiliency. So there is no incentive for investors or the developers or the governments to embed resiliency in their planning process and in their development itself. And so, Michael, what kinds of incentives could address this challenge? I mean, it seems like we all know that on the surface just seems like a very necessary investment to make in climate resilient infrastructure. What kinds of incentives or sweeteners could governments or project developers or structurers add to these products to make the money actually go to the place where it's the most needed? These countries have lots of efforts, let's say, to try to do things better. They recognize that when they have problems, this is going to cost them their budgets. It's going to cost them political will because people are waiting for the government to help them. It's going to create international debt. And so if we can help them to get insurance products that assist in these events, then this is a, a tremendous input for these governments. Now, if we can couple that with infrastructural change that really does protect people and really does help build resilience, those insurance premiums should come down and become more affordable for these governments. And so that in itself is a huge incentive. If you can manage your cash flow better, if you can get the insurance to do that in the first place, and then if you can get that insurance cheaper because you've created this infrastructure, and then you're seen as someone, as a government that has protected its people. And so these kinds of incentives are really important to governments. And as they happen more and more frequently, they become less and less able to manage these issues. And so this kind of a combined structure, combining infrastructure and insurance, but also combining an array of different players from investors to insurers to combine those is really a powerful incentive for these governments. It sounds like a very effective way to address what we're essentially saying. It's a money now or money later problem, right? That you know the disaster will be more expensive later, but you still don't have the money now to make the changes needed to address the disaster. So I wonder if you could give us an example of the type of structure that you're talking about. So if we think about a big example, if we think about, for example, Venice. Last year, Venice had a test of their new 
wall, their seawall that blocks the high levels of, of seawater from the city itself. And so by doing that, then you've actually reduced the risk in the city and you've been able to protect the people within. Now, I recognize this isn't a low-income country, okay? But the fact that there's that protection level there is something, is, is what we're kind of aiming at for these lower-income countries. So the idea would be that the climate insurance bond that you're talking about would help us, say, Bangladesh, build this kind of infrastructure to protect from flooding, for example. Yeah, it would help. This kind of a bond would help those countries like Bangladesh to create appropriate infrastructure to help people. And in some cases, that may even be moving low-income people to new areas. But that in itself has to be done very carefully, too, with appropriate infrastructure, because if you move people away from the coast and for generations, they've been fisher folk living off fishing. Right. And now they're in the interior of the country. Now they become farmers. How do you do that? So it's complicated structural implementation. So I think we've seen it in, in some of the richer countries now. We see big wind machines in Florida, for example, to try to test the resiliency of houses and things. But I think we need these kinds of things more in low-income countries now. Abhishek, please, do you have any examples of how this structure might work? Yes, Esther. I think there is an example closer to where both of us are based in New York City, where New York City was hit by Sandy, and the city is still recovering from the impacts of that in terms of the subway redevelopment, etc. So using the example that Michael just gave, if there was a seawall and there are other resiliency measures embedded, first of all, the impact of Sandy itself would have been less. Secondly, New York City would not have been stretched for finances in any shape or form had they had the climate insurance purchased for a long period of time, say a 20-year insurance, which would have immediately resulted in a payout, which could have then gone to rebuild the city as needed, and the recovery could have been faster. Thirdly, because New York City would have an insurance product, it would have also built a seawall, it would have been able to bring down those premiums and saved on that, which could have created this virtuous circle of using that financing to build further resiliency. And finally, the investors in New York City would have seen New York City as a much safer investment compared to another city which is not doing any of this and expected lesser returns on the municipal bonds, for example, issued by New York City. So really that you're talking about two pieces, right? You're talking about the climate insurance that is purchased by the municipality or the government that's at risk, and then the municipal bond that's issued to allow the municipality or the country to build the climate resilient infrastructure. How are those two related? Those two issues, the bond and the insurance, are integrally linked, and they're backed up by the fact that these are long-term. So governments can have a consistent expectation of what their outflows are going to be. And so if we have the bond, we can do things to reduce the risk and create risk mitigation mechanisms for these low-income people. And then when those events happen, then they have insurance to help cover whatever does happen. So a reduced level 
of risk and impact, let's say. And so having the two pieces together makes it much more effective because you're not just looking at the insurance, you're not just looking at infrastructure, but having the two pieces together makes a blanket of protection for the government, for the people, and really is a benefit across the board. And I think, you know, for those of us living in the United States, we've seen wildfires in California. We've seen this recent freeze in Texas. We're seeing hurricane impacts. I think there's no citizen in any country in the world who hasn't seen devastating impacts of climate change. And of course, those impacts are only exacerbated for poor countries. So it seems like this would be something that really addresses the challenges that we're seeing in front of us uh, very clearly. And also then helps to build what Abhishek was talking about earlier, a more holistic view of externalities, right? It, it actually prices in some of these climate risks and doesn't allow the financial sector to ignore them when they're considering their financial returns. Was that one of your goals? Yes, I think that is definitely one of the goals. I think it's not just the private sector investors, but even some of the DFIs. The holistic approach of looking at climate risk and how it impacts their portfolios is something which is missing at the moment. While there are certain policy initiatives, etc., already being worked upon, this is not something embedded inherently in their investment thesis or in their portfolio management. And going forward, I think the reason investors are part of uh, these conversations is because they are realizing that if they don't make those decisions now and make that distinction right now in their investment thesis, then managing their portfolios will become more and more difficult. And they would have significant exposure to climate risk, which they are not pricing today in their investment thesis, and they don't know how it will impact their portfolios going forward. So I think it's important for investor communities to start thinking about it more seriously and start pricing more importantly. How to price certain kind of resiliency itself is difficult. And similarly for insurance companies, it's difficult. How do they price a long-term insurance product which they don't know how climate events will come about? So I think there are challenges on pricing as well and measuring that risk. And two of the great hopes of the UN are that things like climate externalities would be priced into financial decisions and that investors would take a more long-term view. So, Michael, you've been working in the insurance industry for a long time. And, of course, insurance does look at a long-term view. Why is this type of product only coming up now? Why haven't we seen it before? I think it's because we're seeing the effects of climate change much more frequently and much more severely now. I think it's forcing insurers and governments to take a second look here. And I think there haven't been mechanisms to make that happen. I think that, yes, in terms of the calculations and the risk studies, I think these are being calculated. But I think on the ground, it's been much more difficult to implement these. And I think now, you know, if I go out to talk to farmers in the middle of Tajikistan, they're telling me about the problems they're facing because of climate change. And they're looking for solutions. And governments can't keep responding to these kinds of frequencies. So I think they're becoming more interested. So in a lot of ways, I think there's a cost issue and a cost implication, of course, but it's also that we're forced to look at this issue now more in terms of protecting the populations. And so with that example, with the farmers in Tajikistan, it sounds like you think that there may be an application for this type of model or this way of thinking beyond just municipalities and perhaps beyond infrastructure. 
to address other sectors that are affected by climate change. In Tajikistan, the issue that we came across is with the growth of cotton. And cotton needs the soil to be a certain temperature before you can plant it. And it needs a certain number of degree days, I think 2,000 degree days, for it to be able to grow properly. And what's happening there is that, in this case, the snow in the mountains is not melting off fast enough. So the spring now has, the planting season has shifted by a month, but the end point, the harvest point, hasn't shifted. And so now it's a much tighter squeeze to get those 2,000 degree days. So if the government were, for example, to create big water tanks that they could use to store the water in the fall, that's still there, then they would be able to provide some water for that period and get farmers to be able to plant a little earlier. So here's an infrastructure program that could happen in Tajikistan. And then if there is a catastrophic issue, if the water runs out and the snow still hasn't melted, then there's some insurance to help back up the farmers, to help the government get people going. Something like this could really help the farmers in Tajikistan. Abhishek, switching uh, tacks a little bit, I wonder if you could tell us about parametric insurance and how it might apply to the conversation that we're having now. Sure, Esther. I think when we are thinking about this insurance product, one of the key challenges that municipality face is on the day when the disaster strikes. And as we have seen in, with the current crisis of COVID, there are lots of times governments have to support small businesses, etc., to, to come back up to speed or till the time of recovery. And the parametric insurance ensures that there is a lump sum which is paid out irrespective of damage of their individual asset or individual person, etc. So that's a lump sum which gets paid out. And when we think about a product like this, it will have sort of two components to it, hopefully, which will have a parametric aspect to it, which will be a lump sum payout. And then there will be an asset specific payout in terms of the damage to a specific infrastructural asset, which could help the municipality recover from a big catastrophic event and do immediate emergency response, if you will. I can see why that would be very necessary for the insuree. How does the insurance company make money given the increasing frequency of large climate disasters? How do we make this sustainable from a financial perspective from the insurance company? Yeah, Esther, so the insurance companies make money because typically what's happening is that the local insurance companies that basically front the products are seeding most of the premium back to reinsurers. And the reinsurers are able to diversify their portfolio enough so that if there's a disaster in the Philippines, there's not a disaster in Ethiopia, maybe. And so they're able to diversify in that way. And that's how they can at least theoretically make money. As this happens more and more frequently, then it becomes a little more of a question. So I think it's important to think about it on that way. And what we've seen in the past is that when we've waited for governments to respond to issues, if we think about the Ethiopia famines from 20 years ago, you know, it took months for the international community to get together and to put enough money together to be able to make something happen. And if we look at a parametric product, we're basically saying, if the drought level hits a certain amount, then it gets paid. And so the governments get the money much faster and they can respond much faster. When we're waiting for others to respond, the people are dying and there, there's 
more and more destruction. And so this way, parametric insurance eliminates the need for us to go out and do particular specific adjustments. It's just if it's hit that trigger, then it gets paid. And so this is really a tremendous benefit for governments. And it also has the added benefit, which we at UNCDF uh, know the value of, that the money then goes through the government systems, right? The government infrastructure that already exists. It's not a separate and parallel distribution system coming from the United Nations or a bilateral relationship. So then not only, as you mentioned before, Michael, not only is the government getting credit for delivering assistance to its people, it's using its own systems and strengthening then its procurement capacity, its accounting capacity, its delivery capacity. So that type of support is actually strengthening the government's ability to respond instead of weakening it or undercutting it, as some international efforts you know, have as unintended effects. Let me add on to what you just said. Yeah, please. There are some programs, Esther, that actually are looking at trying to enhance capacity of governments to do exactly what you're saying, to be able to have the insurance. So like the ARC in Africa, they create an insurance pool, but also one of their key objectives is to help the governments to be prepared for these kinds of events, because it's not just having the money, then it's about having the infrastructure to be able to implement your corrective measures or your, your mitigative measures. So this becomes really important too. Is, is So you've got the physical infrastructure, but you've also got the capacity building that needs to happen with these funds. And, and the ARC, as an example, is, is working on that. That's fantastic. And of course, UNCDF's local economic development practice is really focused on this element of capacity building at the local level to support the ability of governments at the municipal and provincial level to be able to deliver these kinds of services. So insurers are not only a key player in this product that we're talking about in terms of offering the product, they're also massive investors. They hold themselves pools of finance. So have you seen in as this discussion evolves and as the climate crisis gets worse, are you seeing willingness from insurers to invest their money in ways that is consistent with this type of climate resilience building? Or are they investing in kind of the same way as traditional finance worked without taking these externalities into account? Maybe I could share an example of a conversation that we had with an investor side of an insurance company. And I think they are more aware of these risks. So, But at the moment, their approach is sort of zero-one approach. So if they see that there is an investment which has exposure to climate risks, then they likely will not invest in that asset. And they will look for a similar asset in a place where such a climate risk doesn't exist. So they are more aware of it, but they are not fine-tuning their investment thesis. So it, it means that certain parts or certain assets will only get built in certain geographies and not in other geographies. And I think that's, that's the risk. And you're right, Esther, insurance companies are some of the biggest asset managers themselves. They own trillions of dollars of assets and they are the biggest asset owners globally. Uh, so it is fine-tuning their own investment thesis, which, which can help. And I think it is a fairly simplistic problem looking from outside is that they could have an internal transfer pricing mechanism between the insuring arm and the asset owning arm and, and find a, a way to price the risk. But it's, it's easier said than done. So this is very exciting work. Thank you both for pursuing it. It sounds like it's really cutting edge and addresses so many both pragmatic needs 
and practical needs. So from the standpoint of our constituents, the LDCs and vulnerable countries, it really helps them get over what has been a crippling hurdle, which is that they are beset by climate crises every year. They can't pay for the insurance, but if they don't have the insurance, they have no chance of recovering from the crisis. So the fact of having the insurance, the fact of having investment finance available for them to build climate resilient infrastructure lessens the impact of those climate crises. It really is a lifesaver, a literal lifesaver for them. And then the fact that you're talking with insurance companies and bringing them into this discussion to create the product means that the product will be financially viable, that companies can offer it, they can see a business line in it, and that it's not something kind of the UN is pushing them to offer, that they are seeing the business case for offering this type of product. So that seems really terrific. I wonder if you could talk, Mike, a little bit about the reception that your discussions have had with the various players that you have in your working group. As we're discussing more and more with the working group and focused primarily on the insurance side so far, heading towards the bond side, but we've had really, really good reception from the insurance companies, the reinsurance companies also. There's some, you know, some questions and there are some big hurdles here that we have to address. 20-year bond is a big issue and insurance pricing for 20 years, that's a big issue that we have to get over and we have to work on how we can make that happen more effectively. And so they're certainly not passive participants. They've been very active and interested and, and they want to see a solution to this. And I think that's super positive. If they want to see a solution and they're willing to work to help find one, I think that's a, a great kudu for um, for um, the insurers. Absolutely. And it's a perfect example of SDG 17, Partnership for the Goals, which was the idea that every sector and every industry had some key role to play in achieving the SDGs. And that in the past, we've never, as kind of a global community, tapped the, the potential of having every sector of society contribute to achieving the same goal. And now the fact that you have private sector insurance companies the insured cities, you know, the people who would be affected by this all talking together to create a product that will work for everyone, I think is really a fantastic step forward. Abhishek, what led you to bring this working group together and think that this was something that the UN could help to facilitate the creation of? I think the thought process came from one of our internal discussions with our colleagues who work on climate adaptation was to find a way where we, where there could be a mechanism to provide that emergency response for municipalities and local government. And I think that was a challenge that they have seen firsthand. And secondly, how can we move financing? And again, this is UNCDF's goal to move more SDG-related financing into, into LDCs. So thinking about these two things and how you could merge the two is how I initiated this discussion. And it happened with Michael and his colleague Nancy, who both have been involved in this sector for many, many years. And they were very helpful and collaborative in brainstorming in the initial days of the conversation. So thank you again, Michael, uh, for all those conversations. I think it's great. Thank you. Thank you, Abhishek. It's been a great, a great journey so far with you. And so as we are wrapping up, I have one question for each of you. How optimistic are you about seeing kind of actual pragmatic change in climate adaptive finance? And how long do you think it will take? Climate adaptive finance is, um, is an evolutionary process. We're going to have to start with some, have some examples, show people that it works. And this is going to take years, unfortunately. 
It's going to take years, but it's critically important. And I am actually very positive and very optimistic because we have more and more professionals, insurers, investors, others, governments that are interested in actually doing something and making something happen. And, and so that makes me feel very positive. And, you know, you, you mentioned the SDGs, Esther, and, you know, I think the SDGs are, are critical and a focusing point for many of these industries. And I would argue that although insurance is mentioned one time in the original SDG documents, I would say that insurance underpins most of what's there on the SDGs. And I would argue that without good insurance, we can't have sustainable development. And so the work that Abhishek and this working group are doing is really trying to find a big step forward. And yes, it's going to take some time. But if we can get some examples out there, I'm confident that we can do more and more and really create some benefits in these low-income countries. Abhishek? I think I couldn't have put it better than what Michael just said. I think I'm very positive about this, not just this approach, but in general, about the conversation around climate adaptation finance. And, and this morning, I was in this call uh, where LDCs are saying and, and asking sort of the bigger BFIs and MDBs to think about at least 50% of finance going towards climate adaptation. And I think that's an ask which is becoming more and more formal coming from LDCs. And I think the donor countries are acknowledging that fact that while mitigation in itself is an important task and act to do, we have reached a point in the climate change continuum where adaptation has to be taken very seriously and invested into. But I'm very positive that the conversations are moving in the right direction and Hopefully, all of this will come together soon, sooner than later. Well, thank you to both of you for your fantastic work on this. It's nice to hear some positive thinking about what can be achieved in the future. And I think the example that you're setting with this cross-sectoral working group, looking at the very technical and specific challenges to creating a climate insurance bond, are a tremendous example for all of us about what can be done in the future. So we will look forward to touching base with you again. And maybe later this year to see where the working group is. And we'll very much look forward to the first bond or investable product coming out of the group and how it will impact our constituents in the least developed countries and other vulnerable people around the world. Thank you so much, Michael and Abhishek, for joining us today. Thank you, Esther. Thank you, Esther. Once again, that was UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Thank you for joining us. And you can find us again on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org. Take care and stay safe.